It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome once again inside the Wheelhouse Podcast. We are inside the Ichiro Room. Aaron Goldsmith, Jerry DePoto, Colin O'Keefe. Jerry, if only there was something to talk about. This team was just so boring. What a snooze the 2018 Mariners are. Am I right or am I right, Jerry? Yeah, I, are we playing well? That, this, uh, <laughs> it's been phenomenal to watch. The the guys are they, they've really bonded and and used the the Robinson Cano suspension as a as a really a starting point or a jumping point into one of the best stretches we've had in the history of the organization. It's been fun to watch. They're energizing. They're entertaining. And we talked, uh, I remember when I was in Little Rock and we did, uh, and I don't remember which episode it was, but we talked about that kind of collegiate excitement that, that Ryan Healy brought to the table. That is what our team is experiencing right now. It, it looks like they're playing the College World Series every day. It's fun. Hey, speaking of that, uh, we just happened to notice the other day the D. Gordon conga line high five after big moments on the field. Have, have you you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this? I, I've very much seen it. He's hopping up and down. It is <laughs> it, it is uh, he has a very tough time because he does not necessarily have a, a waist uh, keeping his <laughs> keeping his uh, his belt buckled. You know it, it pops out, but uh, he's the source of so much of our energy, both offensively what he brings to the team and even what he's doing in the dugout. It's so fun to watch. Well, we are recording this in advance of Game One four-game series against the Boston Red Sox. And what a series this is going to be. We'll talk about that a little bit coming up. But to recap, the Mariners are coming off a 6-1 and one week, a three-game sweep of the Angels of Anaheim. Mitch Hanniger, if there's any way to ever possibly outduel Mike Trout, especially what he did the last three days, Mitch Hanniger somehow found a way to do just that. And remember, you can always subscribe to us uh, basically everywhere at this point, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Uh, when you think about the beginning of this homestand. And Jerry, we've talked about it. This is a homestand that has been circled by Mariners fans all across the country. It could not have gotten off to a better start. What stands out to you the most about those three games against the Angels? Again, I think it's the excitement, the resiliency. The the, the we, we were playing against the best player in the world. I mean, and he showed it for three days. He was awesome. And we kind of, the, the old boxing uh, reference we give him the old rope-a-dope yeah I think uh, you know Mitch Hanniger and, and Ryan Healy and Gene Segura and Nelson Cruz contributions up and down the lineup the sneaky good starting pitching that we've typically gotten and a bullpen that's generally finished it, it uh, it's kind of been our our MO and here as we get into June I think now 10 and 2 in June and and as we talked about the Astros the Angels the Red Sox etc you can only go one day at a time. And, and what I appreciate about what this team just did for the three games against the Angels is they focused on one day at a time. 
And it starts with Scott and the staff and, and what they do. You know, we had to win those games. The first two were close. They felt like blowouts because we, win, we were winning by two. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we did focus on one day at a time to the point where yesterday we were a little thin in that bullpen. And there was going to be you no know, Edwin Diaz to pitch the ninth inning. There was going to be no Ryan Cook. And, you know, and, and to the credit of the group, you know, Mike Morin and Elias, Rowanis Elias and, and, and Chase and Bradford, everybody chipped in and did what they needed to do. And, and, and we, we got to the end of the road. And this team has been so resilient as 25 guys every night. One of the great things that came out of the win yesterday, the walk-off win in the rain at Safeco Field, which we don't ever get to say that, was a story that Mitch Hanniger shared in the clubhouse postgame with reporters and a story of he and Mike Zanino sitting side-by-side inside the film room during the game, looking over tape, and when the Mariners were trailing, one looked to the other and said, we're going to win this game. And there's no doubt, and we've, we've talked about this before, there's no doubt with this team that they will come back. As a general manager, when you kind of hear a story like that of two of your key pieces, right, your starting catcher and your starting right fielder, having that belief, that vocal belief with one another, I, I can't imagine what that must feel like as a GM. It's it, very exciting. And, and largely it's because we all believe it too. When, when it's happening, uh, we've seen this team do this so many times over the last two and a half months or so that, that it's become almost commonplace for them. They believe that, that that being down by a run or two going into the seventh inning is right where they want to be and and that they're going to come back and win. I, I think even internally they talk about that seventh, eighth, ninth inning being their time. And you know, it's that it truly is. That's when games are often won and lost. So the the fact that that we feel confident in those circumstances, that we have enough power to win the game with one swing, that we have enough speed to do creative things, to to, to make runs happen, like we did earlier you know, with the D Gordon and Gene Segura. You know, ultimately Gene called out on the play. I don't know. I, I, you know I'm a little sketchy on that one, but you know, I, I think the the way we do things, it, it it's we have a more creative offense than we've ever had. And and the the fact that these players believe in one another, is it, it's so much fun. And that's why the energy level is so high. And when the seventh inning comes, you can just see the dial. It, it just turns in our dugout. And these guys are just ready to explode. And as soon as something happens, it could be a blooper into right center. It could be an infield hit. It could be an error that starts something. And they know it's on. And when it's on, you see they start jumping up and down. And I, it was pretty appropriate yesterday when Mitch hit his home run through the what I would say was a little more than a drizzle. It was a ste- it was a steady rain for yeah, sure. Yeah, considering we have a roof. <laughs> you know, he, he did hit the ball into the the Edgar's area down there in left field, and seeing the fans down the left field line hopping up and down, like it, I, I felt like I was watching the the Tokyo Giants, and and I was waiting for them to start singing songs. What is a moment like that like in the general manager suite? Were you in? Is that where you were when that, when that home run was hit? Correct. Like? Yeah. I mean, what's that like when in your area of the ballpark when you see something like that? I'm jumping up and down, just like the, the people down in Edgar's, and and I think you know we we gave it the fist pump, and but oddly enough, it was that that weird confidence that you feel like this team is going to do it, and and you see where we are in the lineup, and you have a pretty good idea about who's hot, who's not, and. And, and in this particular case, especially for the past three days, 
what we're starting to see is we're starting to see the bats get rolling again. And when our bats are hot, our offense can be as good as anybody's. And there's not too many places you can go to hide. And yesterday or the previous two days, it seemed like one of the, those stretches where, where we are a fun offensive club when these guys are clicking. Scott had a quote in so many words saying that if you don't like this team, you don't like baseball, which if you are an impartial fan and you don't have a team to root for, I would say the 2018 Mariners are about as entertaining of a purchase for a ticket you can possibly buy. I said, funny statement yesterday. I'm sitting up in the box and we've got a group of our people from the front office and, you know, Roger Hansen, special assistant, sits there with me every day. And, and I turned around and I said, at some point, it was probably the seventh or eighth inning of that game. And it might have been right about the time Gene hit the ball into right center. D scores effectively running through a, a no sign. And, and you know, Segura then it tries to score on what was a really instinctive play by David Froucher, frankly. I think you got to give credit where it's due. And I turned around to Jeff Kingston and to Roger, and I said, if you don't enjoy this game, I don't know what you're coming to the ballpark looking for. Uh, there's, we could have played a little cleaner. We made a fair number of mistakes in yesterday's game. But I think the sign of good teams is you don't let that drag you down. You, you, you come back the next inning, you focus yourself, and, and you go win the game, which is what these guys are doing. I'd like to get your perspective and your thoughts on what might go down. It's a lot of baseball to be played, but might go down as the best defensive play we'll see all season by the Mariners. And that and what makes it even better is that both guys came over in the same trade. Hanniger in basically in foul ground in right field, throwing to Segura to nab Valbuena at second base. What did you like better? Did you like the throw more or the tag more? There's, I have to say the tag was wildly creative. And, you know, when it first happened and, and Mitch went into the corner, you're thinking automatic double. And he, he went and cut that ball off so quickly and turned. And, and Mitch has a little bit of a longer arm action. He's got a very strong and accurate arm, but his, his, it's, he's not a quick to unload the ball. He got rid of that ball so quickly, threw it right on the bag, and you could see the way Gene situated himself as the ball was arriving. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And and the instincts that it takes to do that, it's phenomenal. And not just to 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 think through as the ball is in midair, the only way I'm going to be able to make this catch and tag is to do it with my back to the runner. And 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 then to do it, pull it off, make it look so clean. And it wasn't even a particularly close play when all was said and done. He was out by a foot and a half, uh, which I think is pretty phenomenal. All the things that had to go right for that play to happen. I, I would imagine we don't see a better executed defensive play than that all year long is pretty phenomenal we've already talked about the resiliency of this team and i'm curious your thoughts on this jerry it is your podcast after all when you talk about you look at a team over the course of 162 i feel like there are some teams in some seasons where you don't really know what the culture is you don't really know what the mindset is you you might get into september and you still go "Eh, I, i don't know i just don't know it seems like for this team it was set very early and now it has been kind of essentially just put in autopilot. And there's no reason to think that it will not ride this way the rest of the season. Does it feel like it's been set earlier this year than maybe for some other teams? And I'm not just referring to the Mariners, but just for other teams in general. Well, I think like every team is a little bit different. And, and even every team in the history of an organization, you know, of a franchise, year to year, things change when bodies change, faces change, etc. And what we're doing now is, it, you know, I guess – when we arrived, myself, Scott, many of our front office members, coaching staff, and a lot of our roster started to arrive in 2016, 
you know, the, we set up the, or, or have the desire to create the type of culture that you see today, a faster game, more speed oriented, where the players are, are more, I, I guess, there's more of a team orientation down there where it's team before self, we're playing for something bigger than ourselves. Scott and the staff did an excellent job of starting to implement that in 2016. I think we saw uh, the, the, the onset of that, if at times starting and stopping. You know, 2017, we took a huge step backward, I think in large part due to injury and a couple of guys that didn't work out for us and, and the, the culture or the environment really didn't get going. This year, we've experienced better health. We have imported a number of players who've really taken us north, and not the least of which are some of the guys we've already discussed at length. But most credit goes to Scott and to the staff to, to setting this group up three years ago for where they are today. And now this group, the, the bulk of this group, the Hanegers, the Seguras, the guys like Nick Vincent and Edwin Diaz, they've all played together now for minimally two, and in some cases, three years. They believe in each other. They're comfortable with and understand and believe in Scott and the staff. And and you're seeing the result of that. It's a really good place to be right now down in that clubhouse. And at some point we'll lose three or four in a row. And and you're gonna you're gonna hit the the, the brakes and and somebody's gonna have a scowl on their face. But right now it's you know, it, it is it's wine and roses. They're they're having fun and they're rolling with it. And hopefully when you hit the rough bat, patch, because you will. Uh, the the idea is that they'll rely on one another and pull out of it pretty quickly. When we talk about culture, identity, one of the front office philosophies, obviously, since you and Scott got here, the control the zone, see the Z, which we've talked about a number of times over the course of 24 previous episodes. But I know The Athletic has recently written a piece or two, and they've given terrific baseball coverage so far this year around all of the majors, and the Mariners included, but a piece about see the Z and kind of how it relates to a run differential for the Mariners. And I know that we have talked about the importance, the plus-minus number of the number of times that a Mariners pitcher walks versus strikes out a batter and the number of times that a Mariners hitter walks or strikes out himself. Uh, but I know that that's been something that it almost seems like the waters can be a little bit murky as to the, the priority of one or the other for the Mariners. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot, and, and you know that that has been a mantra for us since the day we arrived. And I think that what's getting lost in the weeds uh, is – this is not for us the, something that that replaces run differential. What this is for us, it's a process. If we focus on things we can control, we can control walks and strikeouts. I can't walk in and Scott can't walk in and, and frankly, Edgar Martinez can't walk in and say, Go score more runs than the other team. That's an effective coaching philosophy. Yeah, you, I, need, I need a plus two. I yeah. need a plus two today. Yeah. It just doesn't two. work. But we can go in and we, we can stress controlling that line of scrimmage, controlling what happens in the strike zone. Because the two things, of all everything that happens in baseball, the two things that you can control most are the walks and the strikeouts. And the other thing, and I think Scott alluded to it in at least one of the athletic articles, which, again, were very well done. The, was was the, the the need to to limit the free bases? We ha- we cannot give away free bases. That's walks. It's errors. It's throwing to the wrong base. It's allowing the guy to take the extra base. It's it's the phenomenal year Mike Zanino is having, cutting down opposing base runners. When you can kill the free bases and 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 excel in that area as well as control the walk strikeout numbers. Now you have something for the players to focus on every day. And to Cliff Corcoran's piece, yes, there is a very direct correlation to winning. 
We don't think it replaces run differential, but it's a process that our players can focus on, particularly at the, the, the grassroots levels in the minor leagues. Give them something that they can focus on that's small and, and, and tangible that they can look at every day. Because if you just tell them to go score more runs than the other team, all you're doing is creating anxiety when they're behind by two instead of just focus on this at bat, this walk, this strikeout, win this at bat. How do you and the rest of kind of the analytical department for the Mariners view the one-run wins and losses for the club? Because most people outside of Safeco Field from a national perspective, they'll all have the same mantra, and that is, well, the Mariners have experienced good luck, and eventually good luck runs out. It becomes bad luck, and those one-run wins become one-run losses. The Mariners are have played the most one-run uh, games in the majors, the most one-run wins in the majors. How do you look at that, though? Do you simply look at it as that's money in the bank, those wins have been deposited, and we will now see what happens today. Do you feel that it's mostly luck? How, how do you look at all this? There's, there is an amount of, or a degree of luck that goes along with it when you're winning that many one-run games. But I don't think that it's, it's not like Murphy's Law. There, there is no Because we went 21-9 in a 30-game stretch of one-run games doesn't mean we're now going to go 9-21 and 21 to even it out. They're in the bank, you know. That that's that's kind of yesterday's news for us. We've we've got our we've got our forty four wins. We're moving forward. We do what we do, and today starts a new chapter versus the Red Sox. And and the the wins that are in the bank are in the bank. And you know, I I, I think there's some good fortune involved in it. I think there's some dominant end of the game relief pitching associated with it. I think there's some, frankly, games that we were winning comfortably and we gave some runs back, particularly in the seventh or eighth inning, that didn't necessarily need to happen that make that number look artificially bigger than it might otherwise be. So, you know, there, we've had some, some walk-offs, we've had some emotional wins, but right now we're, we're running high on momentum. And, you know, I had this, this debate many, many years ago when I was working for the Red Sox. You know, if, if you get too technical and you get too sophisticated in your approach and too focused on, ah, that's, you're too lucky, momentum doesn't exist in baseball, it's a science, I disagree. You've got 25 human beings down there that are definitely feeling some level of momentum, of excitement, and that really matters. You can do a little bit more with that goose of adrenaline, and that little bit more sometimes results in a run-one win that you shouldn't logically or scientifically have been able to pull out of your tail, but you did it anyway. It's not all about the spreadsheets is what you're saying. Sometimes it just happens. There's, you know, there's, we, while we are statistically minded and analytically inclined as an organization, there is very much a balance between that and the human element, the, you know, the good teammate, the guy that believes in one another, doing the little things that help your teammate along. And I subscribe to the fact that those, those two things, and, and there's going to be some kind of 51-49 balance in those. And you have to, sometimes it's 51 to the, to the human element. Sometimes it's 51 to the, to the statistical element. Science is the off-season project. You know, people is the in-season project. And if you get the right 25 people in that room that are doing the things that this group is doing now, it kind of takes care of the science. No, that's, that's fascinating, that statement. Do you mean that simply from the standpoint of how you are constructing your roster every winter and then once, hey, once spring comes, now these guys are together, now it's up to the people? Is that essentially what you're saying? I think so. And, and, and a lot of it is in the offseason, you're working on, on matters like, like differentials. We're trying to project. 
there's projections are a guess or an educated guess based on a, a formula that we put together and we're as guilty of it as anybody we're going to project what we think our team is capable of doing and you've heard me say it before we're trying to to build a team that's constantly in a position that if if things go go well we have a chance to win 90 plus if things go poorly we're going to be in that mid 80s zone and and if we can constantly build a team that has that bandwidth of possibilities when things break right for you like they have this year you know you don't win 21 of 31 run games unless things are breaking right for you now all of a sudden the 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 pieces are there but what you can't do is forget that the human beings sitting on the other side uh, they require a little tlc and they need you to respect what they're doing we can't just go throw a rock in their pond like all right here's the magic we're going to throw you these two players and and they're going to push you over the top and we're going to subtract these two players who are inferior they may be inferior on a spreadsheet but the 23 teammates in that locker room may feel grossly different about how they fit on the team and you have to be aware of the way that the pulse of that room works day to day Nobody's more in tune with it than Scott. He's a, he's, that's the way he was as a player. That's how he's been as a manager. And I believe that the players know that, that he's in that trench with them all the time. Jerry, your closer this year has been incredible. He has done everything but punch his ticket to D.C. for the All-Star game this year. He leads the majors in saves. He leads the majors in, shockingly, one-run saves. Stunner. Yeah. Not every inning, not every one run, not every one inning save for Edwin Diaz is created equally. Sometimes you see him go very fastball heavy. Sometimes you see him go very slider heavy. As you guys, you and Scott, the rest of the analytical department, as you are keeping track of his workload this year, he was just down the other day, of course, because he had been worked so much. How, how do you kind of put value and weight on each individual outing since, especially for Diaz, they're not all created equally? Well, I guess first, to the point that they're not created equally, each outing is going to have a different stress level. And sometimes you could have a a series three or four consecutive one-run save opportunities. Three of them could be very low stress. Like you saw the other night, albeit a a larger spread, we had a three-run lead. Eddie came in and just free and easy, flipping fastballs. He threw 10 or 12 pitches. Most of them were well-located fastballs, and he was done. Not a particularly taxing outing. He's had other outings where he's really had to wrestle his command or he throws a lot of breaking balls trying to match up with a hitter who might not handle it as well. And those are taxing innings. And those could be innings where we have a three-run lead or, frankly, in a tie game where he's really fighting his own command. That is more of an observation. We're watching the work. It's very difficult to really put a finger on. We try not to send Eddie out more than three days in a row. So you get three days in a row. We're going to try as best we can to make sure that the fourth day is off. In an ideal world, if he works hard in one of the first two outings in a two-outing stretch, we're going to give him that third one off. And that's one of the benefits of acquiring Alex Colomay is having another, you know, I guess, noted closer down there that can step in and handle those days when Eddie's need, Eddie needs a blow. But when you're winning as frequently as we've won and you are playing as many close games as we have played, you're going to need your closer to step in and and play a big role. And part of the reason, if not a big part of the reason why we are where we are in the standings is because of Edwin Diaz. We have to be cognizant of the stress we're putting on him and give him breaks periodically. He was not going to pitch in the game yesterday against the Angels regardless of what happened. You know, we got that's that was Colomay was going to pitch the ninth inning. Once we got into those extra innings, 
Rowenis was running with it. Let it. He was going to pitch the rest of that game regardless of what happened. And, you know, it's as this works out, you know, Edwin has been terrific. I don't sense that he's fatigued at this point. And while he may be on a pace to be 80-plus in the in the appearance the column, that's going to happen over the course of his career once or twice where you get in the upper 70s or 80, especially in a winning season. As we get further into the season, it's going to be on us to make sure that we manage that in a way that we're not letting it become a runaway train. And I think we have the personnel to do it. Is the only way to measure his fatigue simply what the radar gun shows, the velocity on him, or are there other ways as well? Well, there are other ways. You know, one of the things we're doing now from a high performance uh, perspective is that each of our players is weighing in every day and letting us know what their level of fatigue is. Uh, And then we're grading it out as a red light, yellow light, green light type mentality. There's, and and as I have said to Lorena, I've said it to, to the HP staff, Having played the game for a number of years, the last time that you are truly a green light is day one of spring training. <laughs> it's just a series of yellow lights, you know, right. which is – and and what we have to be clearly aware of is that when a player is telling us that he's at a red light, we have to listen because most of the players want to keep on driving, keep going, take the next at bat, pitch the next inning, and won't really tell you that they're fatigued. So if a player is telling us that, that he is, in fact, fatigued, we need to, to listen to that clearly. Can you explain the correlation with Edwin Diaz as to why in saves like we just recently saw for him of a two or even a three-run lead like we just recently saw, it was every pitch but one was a heater. Now keep in mind there was barely more than 10 pitches it was almost all fastballs, one slider, the finishing pitch on the night to Trout. And then in one run saves in particular, we see it predominantly be the slider and much fewer fastballs. What's the correlation there? I think it's mostly heart rate, you know, as, as weird as it is. And, and having had a, an opportunity in my lifetime to pitch a fair number of times in the ninth inning in, in close games, your heart rate tends to to roll with whatever is happening in the stadium at the time. And, you know, there, there are days where you're out there and you can physically feel the ground under your feet you know, rumbling because the, the, the crowd is on, on a high. And when you've got that 35, 45,000 people making noise and the ground is shaking, it's really tough sometimes to control your own heart rate. And that's probably the case with Eddie. And when you are in that one-run game or you have a runner on second base and you're trying to be too fine, those are stressful pitches. And, and oftentimes that's when you're, you're missing by, by an inch and then you're missing, you're pulling your fastball crazy to the left. And the next thing you know, you're 25 pitches into an inning and, and you can't get the lasso back around the inning, so to speak. And, you know, when, when Eddie's gone out in the two, three run games and he's just flipping his fastball loose and easy like he's playing catch in a bullpen, he's absolutely dominant. When he goes out there and you see him in that 25-pitch inning, it's one of two things. He's either thinking too much or he's letting his heart rate run a little too quickly. And I know over the last couple of years, Scotty has, has said to Edwin on a routine basis, after a, a, an outing is done or sometimes when he's bringing him into the game, you know, he'll ask him for, for a rating on scale of 1 to 10. That, how's your heart rate? And, and Edwin will say, I'm a 6, <laughs> which is hilarious. And I, just trying to let him know because, you know, 6 is good. You, you want to be pumped. You want to be moving. But if you're at a 9 or a 10 – you probably need to bring it back down a couple of octaves, so to speak. That's something that just comes with more innings, more experience, 
For Edwin Diaz, he's still a young man after all. He really is. And 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 for all the success that he's had in his two plus years in the big leagues, there's a he is still very new to what he's doing. And what we're starting to see is is what was maybe last year a one in two chance that you were gonna see that version of Edwin. Now we're seeing it as only an occasional instance of him running a little bit too fast and having to remind himself to slow down. And sometimes his teammates, whether previously Robinson Cano or Gene Segura, one of them will come in and, and say something, give him a trigger to, to slow it down a little bit. And he does. And and uh, couldn't be happier with the progress that he's made, the, the maturity he's showing on the mound. I definitely think that he should be in Washington with the rest of the American League All-Stars. And I don't think he's the only one on our team that should be there. Your case for Mitch Hanniger to make the All-Star team? There's, I, I feel like I could make a case for Mitch Hanniger being in the discussion, as with Gene Segura as the American League MVP. And, and, and if, to me, if you can make that type of claim, that if you're putting out candidates in June for, the, for that type of accolade, how can we not be talking about them as all-stars? And I know in Mitch's case, you know, what he's doing in, in standard, what we'll call TV numbers, you know, he's uh, – the the, the 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 way he's hitting homers, the way he's driving in runs, and the, the the critical runs that he's driving in. It's not like he's picking up, you know, meaningless runs in the middle of a, a season for a team on a hundred loss pace. He is he has been the key cog in the middle of a lineup in terms of run support for the group and hasn't really taken any time off. You know, for the for the month of May, while he took a he took a pretty step, big step backward from his level of productivity in April. He still found a way to produce runs, and you know if a slump is hovering around a 700 OPS and driving in runs during the course of a, a month-long stretch, I'm in on that. <laughs> Especially when the, the the aforementioned month of April was phenomenal, and what he's done so far in June is show you that that wasn't a mistake. Some uh, roster moves today for your ball club, Jerry, specifically in the bullpen. Can you tell us what's happening? Yeah, we're making a couple of moves today. Obviously, with uh, with the shorter starts, the last not two of the last three days with Wade LeBlanc, and then yesterday being Marco's shortest in a while, uh, decided to to bring some more length in. So we're adding Rob Whalen, who's been starting for us in Tacoma. I think a new, improved version of Rob Whalen that we started to see in spring training this past year, and you know, up to and including his last out outing with Tacoma, he's been very solid. The the walk strikeout numbers have been very consistent. He's getting them to hit the ball on the ground a fair bit, and that's Rob's game, and he's grown up a lot. So with the with Rowanis having thrown two innings in yesterday's game and not wanting to spend our bullpen, so to speak, we brought Rob in for some length, and we brought in, well, I guess the, the Mariners' debut of Nick Rumblow, who we acquired over the winter from the Yankees. Uh, we brought him to spring training, got injured right after his first outing, you know, how it was dealing with a little bit of a nerve issue. He's now healthy. He's throwing the ball great. He's been 93, 96 with uh, the Rainiers and, and two of what we think are exceptional secondary pitches. We'll switch those two in and out. We've, we've optioned Dan Vogelbach back to, to Tacoma. We were operating with the extra position player. It wasn't a great opportunity for Vogie again. And, uh, and we've, we've moved Mike Morin onto the outright waiver uh, bulletin, so to speak. And we'll find out by Saturday where he is. I know Rumbelow was somebody that you were incredibly excited about. We talked about him in some of our earliest podcasts over the winter here at Safeco Field. I would have to imagine for a guy who's had a taste before and now with a new team, he must be just chomping at the bit to get back on a major league mound. 
Yeah, and you know, Nick takes it very seriously. And then we were excited when he started throwing down in Peoria and, and got into his throwing program, progressed to a mound. And then when we saw the stuff that was coming out once he got into his game action in Peoria and was transferred to Tacoma, and not only did he not skip a beat, it ramped up. He's he, Like I said, he's been thrown in the mid-90s. The, the staff down there has been very complimentary of the secondary stuff. Nick's always been a good strike thrower, and he misses a ton of bats. So the the combination of physical stuff and and newness I think is 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 exciting to us and and on the horizon having Juan Nicasio and Nick Vincent both expected back at some point during our next road trip gives us a lot of options in that bullpen and and as we've seen through the course of the year you need them but I'm very excited to see Nick throw and and get a, a look see at, at what he's been bringing to the table because it's it's real stuff. Well, this homestand continues tonight. Tonight, the first of four against the Red Sox. It marks the first of 10 in a row versus two of the best teams in the American League, the Red Sox and the Yankees. Of course, a road trip that starts after Sunday's finale on Father's Day. What are you hoping to see the most during this four-game series and particularly in this 10-game stretch as well? Uh, for us to keep, con- I guess, continue to play with the energy that we've played with. If we keep doing that, we're going to be perfectly fine and, and maintain the same focus on the day-to-day. You know, it's the likelihood of going out and winning 10 in a row is not great. Uh, but what we can do is we can focus on winning one in a row. And if we focus on the one that starts tonight and we worry about the Red Sox and David Price and not worry about what's coming next, it's going to make it a heck of a lot easier for us to, to get through the next 10 days in good shape. And I know this group believes that they can do that. This, they believe in themselves. And I think from a mentality standpoint, their their thought is we have to go play the Yankees and the Red Sox. The Yankees and the Red Sox have to come play the Mariners. And you know it, it's been a long time since that actually sounded like an ominous thing. And, and we're we are very excited about the fact that you know I, I've heard from from the Yankees from the Red Sox. You know it, that they're uh, they're they're excited to come play. They're they're excited to see what's going on with our team because it's uh, they're they're a country away so to speak. And you know, hopefully we can keep doing what we're doing. You ready for stump, JD? There's no way to prep for this, Jerry. I, I've, I've waited all week for this. I, I, there's the I, only way to prep, I suppose, is just every random baseball reference index search that you could possibly think of. Just have at it, and maybe you'll hit on it. Okay, I'm pretty excited about this one. First, I, I want to tell you that the. Uh, Does the, this mean I have no chance at all? I don't. I think you got to. You got to. I mean, hey, just because I stumped you once doesn't mean that you know. Uh, the inspiration for this, by the way, I think you'll appreciate. Earlier in this homestand, thinking back onto the next day. In one game, Mike Trout homers twice and Nelson Cruz homers twice. And you think about that as two guys, let's throw O'Keefe a bone, three guys who love old box scores, right? I mean, you can just get buried in a rabbit's hole looking at old box scores. Sure. In 20 years from now, when we go back and we look at that game, you've got the greatest player ever hitting two home runs and one of the the best home run hitter over a five-year span hitting two home runs in the same game. I just thought that was pretty great. So that kind of got me thinking. Jerry, can you tell me the two players, the two Hall of Fame players who have combined to hit the most home runs in a single game? Jerry, which two Hall of Famers hit the most home runs in the same game? I'm, st- I'm let's, staggered let's start, by the question. Let's start small. You want to take a guess at the number of home runs? Can I, can I take a guess at the era? Sure, yeah, that's fine. You Did go this happen you between 1953 and 1963? Yes, it did. Was it Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews? You got one of them right. 
Yeah. Uh, Goldsmith wins again. <laughs> Whiteboard. There's a, can can I get a little bit of love for the? No, you no, you get you get plenty of love. I get fifty um, percent. Okay, fifty percent of the love. So Hank Aaron is one of them. I'll, let me help steer you down the right path here. It would have been the opponent. Correct. So Aaron. It would have been Aaron and I'm going to say Aaron and Ernie Banks. So, so no. wrong. So bad. Think about which Hall of Famers have ever hit four home runs in a game. Aaron hit two. This other Hall of Fame hitter crushed four. Crushed four homers yeah. in a game. April 30th, 1961, Giants at Braves at Old County Stadium. Willie Mays. It does. It uh, after the podcast is over, I will be the, the guy standing in the corner wrapping my forehead off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Even on a guess, I should have been able to get that. Uh, the, the paid attendance, by the way, according to Baseball Reference box score, was just over 13,000. Um, Hank Aaron drove in all four runs in what turned out to be a 14-4 Giants win. Can you imagine if you had a ticket to that game? And you saw Willie Mays hit four dingers and Hank Aaron hit two. And better yet, if Hank Aaron knew that he'd be hitting two home runs going into that game, he'd probably say, I bet you nobody's hitting more home runs than me today. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> which, not get doubled up. Right. Which kind of, not to get too far down a rabbit's hole on this, but it's always struck me as amazing, and I think we've talked about this before, that Nelson Cruz, the best home run hitter in a five-year span, a very power-laden five-year span in baseball, had never hit, has never hit three home runs in a game. I, I found that out the other day, and I, I found that to be remarkable because Nelson Cruz at the ballpark in Arlington is yes! a terrifying yes! thing. Yeah. When he homered in each of his first two at-bats the other day, I said to myself, okay, finally, this is going to happen. That's right. Uh, Hank Aaron only hit three home runs in a game one time. which is the, And Hank Aaron, to me, it, all of Hank Aaron's greatness – one of the things that is most phenomenal, and I, I, I subscribe to this with Eddie Murray as well, they were, they were phenomenally consistent across the board in their primes in what they were doing. I, Hank Aaron, was as, he was money for 38, 40 home runs, and he was, it, it was, but they were never going to go further, much right. further beyond. His high watermark was 47. Yeah. And other than that, you're right, for a, about a two-decade span, he was – uh, let's call it 30 to 45 every single year, and a, probably a ton of doubles as well. Just like a metronome. Yeah. Right? And, and I think even to, for a guy who also wound up north of 500 home runs in Eddie Murray, I, as, as best I remember, Eddie never hit 40 homers in a year. Really? But hit more than 500 home runs in a career. And it, it was it – was, you look at Eddie Murray's statistics, home runs, 34, 34, 34, 34. It was incredible. And when you do it over and over like Hank Aaron did and you play for a couple of lifetimes, it, it works out. Do you, do you feel that, by the way? Do you feel the momentum shifting from your side of the table to mine and stump JD? Because it is, it is hitting me like a ton of bricks, Jerry. I mean, this well, is— Well, right now, I have to be honest, I feel like you are, you are some combination of Joe Montana and Jerry Rice— and I am a less than average defensive back who's running backwards. Just with n- I, I don't is, know the plays. This is terrible. <laughs> is this going to cost the podcast? Like, are you going to like eighty six the podcast tomorrow just because I've just dominated you in this? Just boycott. Yeah. I, I don't worry. The, the dominance. I'm, I'm perfectly good. Yeah. Well, uh, I w- the funny. It won't thing- be the first time in my life I've been dominated <laughs> on a baseball match. 
The uh, I would say for all these stump JDs, as if although as if people don't realize this already, I would know none of the answers to any of these had I not spent basically half a day looking all of them up. <laughs> so it is a little unfair, but uh, it is the fun of it. Well, uh, let's get to some uh, listener questions, Jerry. Uh, this is a good one from uh, Eric with a C. He wants to uh, know. Uh, about kind of about team travel in a lot of ways and he heard us talking the other day about the team getting into uh, St. Pete at four in the morning after a a night game in Houston Uh, he's kind of curious about the travel experience on a big league charter uh, late night flights and then uh, what do you what do you funny stories from traveling during your playing days Uh, what's that airplane like with um, let's say 40 people from a major league uh, traveling party uh, when you win, it's fun, uh, and and when you lose, it's sometimes a little more quiet. But I, some of the some of the best memories I have of my playing career are from from being on the the flight after we win a game, and you know the, the, you have fun, and and generally speaking, there's going to be two little groups that have the seats down and they're playing cards and and uh there's another group that's huddled around a you know what what was formerly a dvd player and today is not familiar with those that technology (laughs) but continue uh you know there's as a matter of fact when i first got to the big leagues it was it was these small little box tv with a vhs uh and and that's how movies were ingested so you know the the different nuances on a plane you're going to have pockets where where this group of guys is 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 sitting down playing a game of cards this group of guys is talking about the game and and everybody's having fun there's usually some music playing and and uh, you lose game it's generally a little quieter uh there's I, I've had some of the longest flights in my life where where you know you blow a save in the ninth inning in Florida and y- your next game is in San Diego uh <laughs> And, you know, the, the misery of flying across, you know, you have your own row of seats. Uh, and this is back when we used to take normal 747s. And and uh, I can remember vividly blowing, blowing a save against the Marlins one night in 1997, their World Series year. We were, we were trailing them in September in the wild card by two games. And uh, th- this was kind of our, our moment to make it up. And I gave up a home run to Bobby Bonilla on what was like the longest at bat in the history of at-bats in my mind. And that the loneliness you felt when you're riding across. And, and by the time we got 40 minutes into the flight, I had Walt Weiss sitting next to me and Curtis Laskanik on the other side of me and Steve Reed sitting in the seat in front of me. And half the team wound up sitting in the two rows that, that were surrounding my seat. And we sang songs all the way across the country until we got to San Diego. And then I didn't sleep for two days. But, <laughs> Uh, maybe it's like, like a family road trip. You're singing songs. <laughs> yeah, it was like the Griswolds. And was and, there a cacao dropped at some point? No, but I think Ann Edna was riding on the roof of the plane. <laughs> um, we had. Uh, I'm not a very good singer, but but willing. I'm willing. The, the one night as a rookie, I, I had an opportunity to close in the second half of my rookie season with the Indians in 1993, and I blew a save in Minnesota on a getaway night. Uh, so we had a night game in Minnesota after which we were traveling to New York to play the Yankees. I blew a save in the ninth, uh, gave, up a, gave up a run, and tied the game. Got the next out, and, and that was it. We wound up playing 19 innings, and uh, we got to New York, and I was introduced my, my robust salary of $109,000 at the time. Different major league. I would say so. Time. Uh, I mean, O'Keefe makes that. <laughs> we, we got to New York, and I was informed at the point that we landed and the sun was already up at uh, JFK that I was being fined $1 per minute for every minute the game went beyond three hours. 
<laughs> so uh, I had to cough up a little dough on that one. But the, the major league travel is it's a lot of fun. It is grueling, you know, as you know, traveling with the team through the, the course of a season can be really grueling. It's a marathon. But when you get guys that enjoy being together, it, it can be so much fun. And the stories you'll have for years are great. Can I tell you what makes it less grueling? The veal chop that we ate <laughs> flying home from St. Pete. Jack Mossman, Mariners traveling secretary. Phenomenal he, job. Oh, he, Phenomenal job. Jerry, lifetime contract. There's a, a there's, lifetime contract. I think it goes without saying that oftentimes, whoever you, it's the mafia. When you are hired as a, as a team's traveling director, it, when is the last time you ever really see until that person retires? It's kind of like, you know, no, you're it, right. is, it is Don Mossiman. <laughs> oh, Jack, in fact, the meal was so good. I went up to Jack uh, twice. First time he was asleep. The second time he was awake. And I said, Jack, last night, which was Saturday night, we had a night off in St. Pete. And I had, I had a tremendous dinner. And I said, Jack, I had a dinner that was off the charts last night. And the meal that I just got served at 30,000 feet might have been better. I mean, that made a long flight cross-country like, almost kind of worth the flight, to be honest with you. It was a, it was tremendous, Jerry. Now I feel badly for not having wow. been on that you flight. You missed out. It was yeah. a good deal, job. Uh, okay, uh, this is Hillary in Seattle, who happens to be a co-creator of the Maple Grove. Sweet. Uh, Hillary's checking in, and she would like to know, Jerry, if, um, if Jerry joined the Maple Grove, uh, which we'll be seeing coming up on this homestand, uh, like a series against the Red Sox, I should say, tomorrow night. Which sign would you want to hold up? It could be a current sign or one that maybe you have created in your spare time at home. Uh, and the only uh, requirement here is that you cannot be holding up an A card. That's apparently too easy. So anything else, uh, what sign would you be holding? Does it have to be a James Paxton card? or? I mean, it has to. I would think it would have to fit into the theme of the Maple Grove. Now, if this was a... A, a bird of some kind. I suppose that maybe Hillary would let that slide. But what type of James Paxton cheering memorabilia would you be uh, toting out there? I would like to go Seinfeldian chess painter. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, let's just, I could go a 65 on the back, JP on the front, okay. and uh, perhaps in homage to, to James' 2018 dominance, just go with the eagle on the shoulder. And and uh, and and be that guy. It, it's uh, was face David as Putty? well or just chest. When we cut this up, we go V neck with the paint, we go crew neck with the paint, or are we going up to the forehead. What's the move there? Would it be possible to go wrestling mask? Uh, well, I think to for to keep the autograph request down, I think a wrestling mask would actually be a really good idea. So, you know, this is only now. This has only happened to me once in my in the last thirty years of my life. I've only been to one Major League Baseball game as a fan uh, in the last 30 years. I'm actually kind of surprised you went to one. Yeah. What game was it? Game one of the game one of the 2004 World Series. Really? Yeah. That's what we were we were in it, and I didn't have to work. <laughs> so it's, uh, I went out to center field, and I had a I had a, a cool beverage with my wife with my with my Red Sox hat on, and, and watched as we as we did a pretty good job, but. Um, that the 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 idea of being out of the game as a fan and I, I I would probably do something so off the wall as to remember the occasion because I, I it's been so long. And then I, I hope that you'd be plugging the podcast to everyone you're sitting around. You know, guys, if you heard the wheelhouse yesterday, they they talked exactly about this right here. His slider, the curveball's coming around. iTunes, check it out. That's Stitcher right. And everything else. I'll go like Broadway, you know, placard where the <laughs> where the hard the hardcore you know neck. 
the, the little iron chains around my neck with the, the wooden placards promoting the wheelhouse over my Paxton body paint. Time out. The fact that you're making time for this high level of nonsense, we really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll, we'll wrap things nonsense, up. Uh, yeah. years, uh, <laughs> we will uh, go around the horn. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, honey, what did you do today? Well, babe, I uh, interviewed our general manager about painting his chest and wearing a wrestling mask. <laughs> uh, tomorrow it is uh, fireworks night, the first of five this year. Um, it's going to be a terrific atmosphere. Wonderful crowds expected all series long against the Red Sox. If you're coming out, uh, please plan to arrive early. Uh, also, Saturday... And we will have, on June 30th, we will have Turn Ahead the Clock Night, which I'm curious which player will have a silver glove and silver spikes. I have played in the, in the Turn Ahead the Clock Night. Wait, what? Round one of Turn Ahead the Clock. You know, all of Major League Baseball did it. Uh, what, was the, what was your game? Uh, we, played, we played Colorado Rockies at St. Louis Cardinals wearing a... I, I still have the... I was gonna, do you have the jersey? I, I don't have the jersey, but oh. I have actual photos wearing the jersey. Was it was the jersey just ridiculous? It was fairly ugly, but I will say, <laughs> I, for all the for all the horror that that it looked like, it was the single most comfortable jersey I've ever really? worn. Oh, it was it was it was I felt like Cashmere? I was ensconced in silk. It was, it was fabulous. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to turning out the clock night, and we'll have to hear more stories about yours uh, when we get closer to June thirtieth, uh, Sunday, July first. Uh, James Paxton bobblehead day with the eagle on the shoulder, of course. A Tuesday, July 3rd is Red, White, and True to the Blue Fireworks Night. And if you haven't gotten yours yet, uh, you can catch every game at the ballpark in July with the Mariners July Ballpark Pass, just 98 bucks at mariners.com slash pass. Mariner, uh, Jerry, your Mariners are rolling. This is about as much fun as anyone can have coming to the ballpark every day. With that said, we appreciate you carving out some time for some baseball info and some nonsense along the way, too. Thank you, Jerry. That's right. Hopefully the image didn't scar you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.